Audio number 97, Congregation of the Dead, part 63, God's War, part 16. The man that wandereth out of the way of understanding shall remain in the Congregation of the Dead. Proverbs 21, 16. Martin Luther, the king of the Protestant Reformation, the king of the bondage of the will movement, the man who wrote in one of his most famous books entitled The Bondage of the Will, he wrote that free choice or free will is a fiction and that that is true by reason herself or self-evident truths tell us that free will in salvation is a fiction. So in America today, we simply ask our pastors, do you believe that the will is free or bound in salvation? And if they say free, and they agree that we have some amount of fingers of cooperation in being made a new creation, then we know that their entire theology is based upon a false premise. If we think of the Bible as a wagon wheel puzzle with the hub of the wheel being salvation and the spokes of the wheel being the 66 spokes of the Bible, if salvation is counterfeited and free will is a counterfeit Christianity, then the entire 66 books are tainted. And thus, in America today, since almost all of the over 300,000 churches in America will admit they are free will, Satan is snoozing. For it is Satan that is in charge of the fast food free will theologians. For common sense coupled with self-evident truths tell us that free will is a fiction. Being made a new creation is no different than our natural birth. All of us know we have zero fingerprints of cooperation on our natural conception and then birth. And that is precisely why Jesus uses the word born. That is born again, because it is only the theologians that can make us to think that the word born is any different than our natural birth. Our natural birth is a picture of our spiritual birth. We have no cooperation on our natural birth, and thus Jesus is saying we have no cooperation on our spiritual birth. And yet, paradoxically, we are to overcome before we die physically, and yet our overcoming means nothing. And so why should we attempt to overcome if it means nothing except for the fact that Jesus commands us to overcome? Jesus commands, Revelation chapter 2, verse 11, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches, he that over 
cometh, keeps on overcoming, shall not be hurt of the second death. And what is the second death? But being eternally separated from the true and living God, the true and living Jesus and his Father and the Holy Spirit. Death simply means separation. When Adam ate of the forbidden fruit, he was driven from the garden on that day. In the day that thou eat thereof, thou shalt die. Well, what died on that day? What died was he lost fellowship with God and now had fellowship with Satan because Satan was now his spiritual father, just as he is all of us natural men Americans that are born into this world. So when God said, on the day you eat, thou shalt die. But Adam did not die physically until 930 years later. So, and so what did God mean when he said, on the day you eat thereof, you shall die. Again, death means separation. And so on the day that Adam ate, he was separated from fellowship with his father in heaven. And thus, we as natural Americans are all born into this world, separated from fellowship with our spiritual father in heaven. And our time here on earth simply becomes a testing ground. We are all, as natural men Americans, on death row, awaiting our execution. For it is God that kills and God that makes alive. It is God that sends us to the grave, and it is God that raises us up from the grave. First Samuel chapter 2, verse 6. The Lord killeth and maketh alive. He bringeth down to the grave and bringeth up. So on the day that we as natural men Americans die physically will be the day that the Lord kills us and sends us to the grave. At that time, we will be separated from our body, our spirit, is separated from our body. We ourselves don't die. Fisherman Peter writes about this. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 12. Wherefore I, Fisherman Peter, will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though ye know them, and be established in the present truth. Verse 13. Yea, I, Fisherman Peter, think it meet as long as I, Fisherman Peter, am in this tabernacle, it is in this body, to stir you up by putting you in remembrance. Verse 14. Knowing that shortly I, Fisherman Peter, must put off this my tabernacle. That is, that I, Fisherman Peter, must put off this my body, even 
as our Lord Jesus Christ hath showed me. So we see that fisherman Peter had no intention of his spirit dying, but his body was going to die. So when we go to a funeral, our body has died, but we ourselves, our spirit has not died. Our spirit is eternal, and thus we must be warned as natural men Americans that we are born into this world not in fellowship with our Father. For when Adam ate of the forbidden fruit, he was driven out of the Garden of Eden on that day, and he lost fellowship with his Father. And all his descendants have lost fellowship with his father. And Adam, including us as natural men Americans, must regain that fellowship before we die physically. Otherwise, we will face the second death. And what is the second death but the final judgment in which we will eternally be separated from fellowship with God? Jesus explains this in John chapter 5, verse 25. Verily, verily, I, Jesus, say unto you, natural men Americans, the hour is coming and now is when the dead, those in the grave, shall hear the voice of the Son of God and they that hear shall live. Verse 26. For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son, that is me, to have life in himself, that is in me. Verse 27. And hath given him, that is me, Jesus, authority to execute judgment also because he is, that is me, is the Son of Man. Verse 28, Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice. Verse 29, And shall come forth they that have done good. And the only way we can do good is to have the righteousness of God by faith. And shall come forth they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, eternal life. That is eternal fellowship with Jesus and our Father in heaven. And they that have done evil, any of us that do not have the righteousness of God by faith, have done evil. For in God's world, only perfect is good. Anything less than perfect is evil. And they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. That is, if we do not have the righteousness of God, we will be eternally damned to hell along with Satan. And this is the second death that Jesus is speaking of in Revelation Chapter 2, verse 11 again. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that 
overcometh, keeps on overcoming, shall not be heard of the second death. Fisherman John writes in Revelation chapter 20, verse 6, Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. And what is the first resurrection? But a spiritual resurrection. In the latter part of this message, we will find that being born again or being made a new creation must include not only a spiritual death, but also a spiritual resurrection. For Jesus says, except a corn of wheat go into the ground and die, it abideth alone and will not rise up to be a new plant. Martin Luther writes that the damned are suffering so severely because they were not willing to be damned. That is, we will never willingly damn ourselves to hell. For we cannot see how evil our heart is until the day of our conversion in which Jesus, the great physician, circumcises our heart and we see our heart as he does. And thus we willingly damn ourselves to hell for we see that our fig leaves of morality are futile in making us holy and thus our fig leaves of morality die a death that we might hunger and thirst after the righteousness of God and we rise up as a spiritual new creation. Jesus explains it this way in John 12, verse 24. Verily, verily, I, Jesus, say unto you, natural men Americans, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die. It abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. If it die, then it becomes a living plant, a living new creation. Verse 25, he that loveth his life shall lose it. And he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. We will not damn ourselves to hell unless we hate ourselves. And that is why Martin Luther writes, the damned are suffering so severely because they were unwilling to be damned. Why? They are in love with themselves. Jesus says to love our neighbor as ourself for he knew that if we love our neighbor as ourselves, that neighbor is really going to be loved because we are really in love with ourselves. But Jesus goes on and writes, Dr. Luke chapter 14, verse 26, if any man come to me and hate not his father and hate not his mother and hate not his wife and hate not his children and hate not his brethren and hate not his sisters, yea, and hate not his own life also. He cannot be my disciple. So with that introduction, let us commence with the message entitled, let us as natural men Americans be determined 
to overcome, to save our souls. And why do we have to be extraordinarily determined to overcome? But for the fact that we are ignorantly born into this world amidst a spiritual war between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And it is only through pure warfare that we can be saved. It is not a game. But if we are honest with ourselves, most of us as natural men Americans are not thinking of the end result, the death of our soul. Our vision, whether we be a natural man American or we be one of the true believers, a vision is essential for hope. Those people who lose their vision, whether it be secular or spiritual, soon lose their motivation and let their foot off the accelerator. There really is no such thing as maintaining in life. Maintaining is just another word for dying. And in true Christianity, there is no such thing as maintaining. It truly is a death warrant. For the true believer is in a spiritual war, as we have talked many times before. In fact, that's what the subject matter has been about for the last 15 or 16 messages. Genesis 3.15 tells us that God was not happy when Adam and Eve believed Satan, especially Eve, who was the one that was deceived. And so God put hatred between Eve and Satan and between Eve's seed and Satan's seed. And who, again, is Satan's seed? Where Satan is an angel, and angels do not have descendants. They don't reproduce. So who is Satan's seed? Who would be Satan's descendants? And the answer to that question is, we simply look at our natures. We are all liars by nature, are we not? Envious by nature, jealous by nature. In fact, we can even murder. Is our nature closer to Jesus? Or is it closer to Satan, who Jesus says is a liar by nature and is the father of lies and was a murderer from the beginning. But Jesus himself was he who knew no sin, was made original sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God. So he knew no sin. Jesus knew no sin means what? That he kept the commandments perfectly. And to keep the commandments perfectly, what does that mean? That means Jesus was holy. Well, are we closer in nature to Jesus or closer in nature to Satan, who is a liar by nature? Yes, that is right. We are all, as natural men of Americans, born into this world with Satan as our spiritual father. But who then is Eve's seed? Well, we find out that Eve's seed, in reality, is Jesus. And who is Jesus' seed then? Well, before the foundation of the world, Jesus and his father made an agreement. 
that Jesus could only give eternal life to the ones that his father had given to him before the foundation of the world. And Jesus' mission here on earth was for the second person of the Trinity to become incarnated and to enter this world as a virgin-born baby from Mary, Mary and Joseph, that is. So Jesus, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in the fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God the Father also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of the things in heaven and the things of earth and the things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So what again is Jesus' mission? But that he is to find and give eternal life to the elect and to lose none. And therefore, as we have mentioned many times, God's war is the seed of the woman against the seed of the serpent. Who is the seed of the woman? Jesus and his elect. Who is the seed of the serpent? We all as natural men Americans are born into this world with Satan as our spiritual father. But some of us are of the elect. But none of us know whether or not we are of the elect until after we are elected. Again, the prime example we have mentioned many times is the Apostle Paul. He had no idea that he was one of the elect and he was one of the top Pharisees that helped in handing Jesus over to be crucified and then persecuted the elect for six to eight years before he himself was elected. And he found out that he was elect. He was persecuting the elect. So this spiritual battle between Satan and Jesus Satan's seed and Jesus' seed, the elect, is the core war that all other wars find their root from. Ultimately, Satan, who is the prince of this world, wants to destroy all of the elect. And most of the time, he does that by doing everything he can to keep it under wraps that he himself is their spiritual father. For we are all born into this world as natural men American, totally clueless to the fact that Satan is our spiritual father. And Satan is the strong man armed. And there is no way we are going to escape from him apart from somebody stronger coming in and binding the strong man armed. And the only person that is going to do that is Jesus. Now let us... Again, think about this. How many of us, natural men, Americans, are aware that Satan is our spiritual father? And Satan has been judged by God already. He's on death row. And because 
he's on death row. We as his children are also on death row, awaiting our execution. And if we don't know this, we don't even know that there's a spiritual war going on. But then we as John Q. Public, being a simple people, we ask simple questions. Who is supposed to be telling us that Satan is our spiritual father, but the church? So then we ask, as John Q. Public, another simple question. Which church is in charge in America? Which church is dominant in America? Well, any of us that know anything about our history know that in America today, most all of the churches and all the religious airwaves are controlled by the fast food, free will theologians who do not believe in election, but that we have a free choice to choose the Jesus of our choice rather than Jesus choosing us, rather than understanding that Jesus cannot give eternal life to everyone but only those that have been given to him by his father before the foundation of the world. So if the free will church, the fast food free will theologians are dominant in this country, why would they not put on the front burner that the spiritual war is that Satan is the spiritual father of all of us Americans. It's so much on the front burner that all of us Americans would know that Satan is our spiritual father. Now, we all know that God is love because the fast food free will theologians have that on every billboard across America. But why don't they have on every billboard across America that we as Americans are born in captivity to Satan when we are born into this world? And the answer to that question is that Satan is in charge of the fast food free will theologians. And even if his fast food free will theologians acknowledge Satan is our spiritual father, they simply tell us we can make a free will decision and with a little pretty please with sugar on it, Satan will let us go and we become a believer rather than saying what the bondage of the will preachers would say, that the only way Satan is going to release us, because Satan is not a nice guy, he is a liar, he is the father of lies, he's a murderer from the beginning, he is not going to let us go unless the strong man armed is bound by the man that's stronger than him, which is Jesus. That same Jesus, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It is that Jesus that has to come and bind Satan, who is simply a fallen angel. Now, former Mr. Morality, who was a fast food free will theologian himself, describes this 
to his brethren in Corinth, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 13. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. Verse 14, and no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Verse 15, therefore it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, which we've talked about many times. They're fake ministers of righteousness, most of the time of self-righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. So former Mr. Morality says, hey, marvel not at these ministers of righteousness, these fake ministers of righteousness, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. So it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as ministers of righteousness. All of these fake ministers are fast food free will theologians. And we do not have to be a theologian to know that free will in salvation is a fiction. Self-evident truths tell us so. We simply ask ourselves, are we a liar by nature? None of us are going to disagree with that as natural men Americans unless we be laughed off the stage. The second question we ask is, who do we lie to the most? Eight out of ten of us without any hesitation as Americans will say that we lie to ourselves the most. So if we line 10 Jesuses up, all proclaiming to be the truth, but only one of them is the truth, and we lie to ourselves the most, will we pick the true Jesus or will we pick the one that fits our agenda? If we don't say we pick the one that fits our agenda, we'd be lying to ourselves again. We all know that we're going to pick the Jesus that fits our agenda. Martin Luther, who was the king of the Reformation, wrote a book entitled Bondage of the Will in 1524 in response to Erasmus, who wrote Freedom of the Will. These two books can be found on Amazon.com. If we were to read Freedom of the Will, and it's not that long a book, it would sound like almost every theologian in America because Erasmus believed in free will. Martin Luther says to Erasmus, I am so glad that you wrote this book, for this is the hinge on which everything turns. I am tired of writing about indulgences and other trivial things, but this is the hinge on which the door of salvation swings. If we are wrong here, our whole doctrine collapses. In this book, Martin Luther just slices and dices up Erasmus's doctrine of free will. And finally, he wraps it up by saying, free will is a fiction. There is no such thing. So Satan's fast food free will theologians base the premise of their doctrine upon a fiction. For there is no such thing as free will in salvation. Here are some excerpts from Martin Luther's conclusion in his book, 
the bondage of the will. Section 167. I shall here draw this book to a conclusion, prepared, if it were necessary, to pursue this discussion still farther, though I consider that I have now abundantly satisfied the godly man who wishes to believe the truth without making resistance. For if we believe it to be true, that God foreknows and foreordains all things, that he can be neither deceived nor hindered in his foreknowledge and predestination, and that nothing can take place but according to his will, which reason herself or self-evident truths is compelled to confess, then even according to the testimony of reason herself, there can be no free will in man, in angel, or in any creature. Hence, if we believe that Satan is the prince of this world, ever ensnaring and fighting against the kingdom of Christ with all his powers, and that he does not let go his captives without being forced by the divine power of the Spirit, it is manifest that there can be no such thing as free will. Again, if we believe that original sin or the evil proclivities of our heart or our sin nature has so destroyed us that even in the godly who are led by the Spirit, it causes the utmost molestation by striving against that which is good. It is manifest that there can be nothing left in man devoid of the Spirit which can turn itself towards good, but which must turn towards evil. In other words, we are so depraved. We will never choose the true Jesus, but a fake Jesus. Again, if the Jews who followed after righteousness with all their powers, that is, they were moralists, ran rather into unrighteousness, while the Gentiles who followed after unrighteousness attained unto a free righteousness which they never hoped for. It is equally manifest from their very works and from experience that man without grace can do nothing but will evil. For in God's world, anything less than perfect is evil. When we try to follow the commandments 
all we can do is cover over the evil proclivities of our heart. We can't eradicate them. Finally, if we believe that Christ redeemed men by his blood, we are compelled to confess that the whole man was lost. Otherwise, we will make Christ superfluous or a redeemer of the grossest part of man only, which is blasphemy and sacrilege, section 168. And now, my friend Erasmus, I entreat you for Christ's sake to perform what you promised. You promised that you would willingly yield to him who should teach you better than you knew. Lay aside all respect of persons. You, I confess, are great and adorned with many and those of the most noble gifts of God to say nothing of the rest with talent, with erudition and eloquence to a miracle, whereas I have nothing and am nothing excepting that I glory in being a Christian. In this, moreover, I give you great praise and proclaim it. You alone, in preeminent distinction from all others, have entered upon the thing itself. That is the grand turning point of the cause and have not wearied me with those irrelevant points about popery, purgatory, indulgences, and other like babbles, rather than with causes, with which all have hitherto tried to hunt me down, though in vain. You and you alone saw what was the grand hinge upon which the whole turned, and therefore you attacked the vital part at once, from which, from my heart, I thank you. For this kind of discussion, I willingly engage as far as time and leisure permit me. Had those who had hitherto for attacked me done the same, and would those still do the same, who are now boasting of new spirits and new revelations, we should have less sedition, sectarianism, peace, and concord. But thus has God, by his instrumentality of Satan, avenged our ingratitude. Now let us revisit again his summary points destroying free will. The first one that he says destroys free will is the foreknowledge of God. Now our fast food free will theologians of America today tell us that God looks down through time and he saw that Judas was going to make a decision to betray Jesus. And so what they deceitfully do is get us to look at the decision that Judas is making rather than to ask one very simple question. And that question is, if God foreknows all things, does God know the outcome? Did God know the outcome 
of Judas. If God knows the outcome of Judas, when Judas finally arrives here on earth at the time of Jesus, can Judas reverse the outcome? If Judas can reverse the outcome, then God made a mistake in the outcome. So if God knows the outcome of Joe Q. Public of America, that Joe Q. Public is going to hell, when Joe Q. Public finally arrives here on earth, can Joe Q. Public of America reverse the outcome by making a decision for Jesus? If he can, then God's outcome for Joe Q. Public of America is a mistake, and God doesn't make mistakes. Therefore, Martin Luther rightly proves that the foreknowledge of God disproves the doctrine of free will, that the foreknowledge of God is immutable, not mutable. Again, Martin Luther writes, for if we believe it to be true, that God foreknows and foreordains all things, that he can be neither deceived nor hindered in his foreknowledge and predestination, and that nothing can take place but according to his will, which reason or self-evident truths, as we just proved, which reason herself is compelled to confess. Then, even according to the testimony of reason herself, there can be no free will in man, no free will in angel, or no free will in any creature. Now, secondly... Martin Luther defeats free will by proving that Satan, who is our spiritual father when we are born into this world as Americans, Satan is evil by nature. He's a murderer by nature. And there is no way that Satan is going to release us unless he is forced to release us. For we must remember in Genesis 3.15 that God put hatred between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Therefore, Satan is not going to release us for he hates Jesus and his elect. And he's not freely going to release us. The only way he is going to release us if the stronger man, Jesus, comes in and binds the strong man armed. Martin Luther writes it this way. If we believe that Satan is the prince of this world, ever ensnaring and fighting against the kingdom of Christ with all his powers, and that he does not let go his captives without being forced by the divine power of the Spirit, it is manifest that there can be no such thing as free will. 
And thirdly, Martin Luther proves that there is no free will because we all as natural men Americans are born into this world with original sin. And we've discussed this many, many times. We all know that we're liars by nature and thus envious by nature, jealous by nature, thieves by nature, murderers by nature. God would not put in his 10 commandments not to commit adultery unless we were capable of doing adultery. God would not put in not to steal unless we were thieves by nature, etc. So we all know by self-evident truth or by, as Martin Luther would say, by reason itself that we are sinners by nature. In fact, that the fountain from which all evil in this world flows is right out of our own heart. And that our heart is so evil that it will never choose the true Jesus. Martin Luther writes, if we believe that original sin has so destroyed us that even in the godly who are led by the spirit, it causes the utmost molestation by striving against that which is good. It is manifest that there can be nothing left in a man devoid of the spirit, which can turn itself towards good, but which must turn towards evil. We must remember that anything less than perfect is evil in God's world. So there is no way we can follow the commandments perfectly. So we are always going to turn towards the evil. We will always turn towards the counterfeit Jesus, not the real Jesus. Now, let us again look at the fourth reason that Martin Luther gives proving that free will is a fiction, that free will does not exists. Here's his fourth reason, quote, if the Jews who followed after righteousness, that is self-righteousness or the fig leaves of morality, with all their powers ran rather unto unrighteousness, while the Gentiles who followed after unrighteousness attained unto a free righteousness, which they never hoped for. It is equally manifest from their experience that man without grace can do nothing but will evil. And his fifth reason if we believe that Christ redeemed men by his blood, we are compelled to confess that the whole man was lost. Not just the heart, but the human mind was lost also. For no one understands. We have to have 
spiritual understanding to understand the spiritual. So the mind as well as the heart is lost. That's what he's saying here. Otherwise, we will make Christ superfluous or a redeemer of the grossest part of man only, which is blasphemy and sacrilege. So here in Martin Luther's conclusion, he gives us five easy, self-evident type truths to prove that free will is a fiction. Martin Luther writes, quote, that is plain evidence that free choice or free will is a fiction. For like the woman in the gospel, Mark 5.25, the more it is treated by the doctors, the worse it gets. For if we believe it to be true that God foreknows and foreordains all things, that he, God, can neither be deceived nor hindered in his foreknowledge and predestination, and that nothing can take place but according to his will, which reason herself is compelled to confess, then even according to the testimony of reason herself, there can be no free will in man, no free will in angel, or no free will in any creature. And therefore, we as John Q. Public of America, being this simple people that we are, ask ourselves, if this is so easy to prove, how is it that the fast food free will theologians with their fictional doctrine have become dominant in America when their doctrine is so easily disproved. Even we, as simple John Q. Public of America, realize we don't need to be theologians to disprove the fictional doctrine of free will. And yet, how many of us, John Q. Public of America, have heard that the foreknowledge of God is simply God looking down through time to see whether or not we are going to accept or reject Jesus, when that is totally false because we cannot change the outcome. For the foreknowledge of God is immutable, not mutable. The foreknowledge of God is not changeable. Judas cannot change the outcome of his betrayal. Or if he could, the foreknowledge of God would be mutable, which is ridiculous. And how is it possible that we as Americans do not know that we are born into this world with Satan as our spiritual father? But we can answer that question ourselves because if our fast food free will theologians put out on the front burner that Satan was our spiritual father when we are born into this world, what would happen to their free will doctrine? It would be exposed as a fiction. For common sense tells us that 
Satan is our enemy. He is not going to be releasing us unless he's forced to release us. We know that God is love because our fast food free will theologians have that on many billboards across America. But do we see on billboards across America that Satan is our spiritual father when we are born into this world and that we are in captivity to him and that we cannot believe unless the stronger man, Jesus, binds the strong man to arm? We don't see that on the billboards, do we? And thirdly, how is it that we as John Q. Public of America, by the trickle-down effect, that even those of us who do not go to church do not know that the fountain from which all evil in this world flows is right out of our own heart. How is it that we don't know that? And that original sin is sin before it ever becomes an act of sin. In fact, we will be judged to hell because of our original sin, even if we never ever committed one act of sin. Original sin is sin, and God is judging us because of our original sin and that we need to repent over our original sin before it becomes an act of sin. How is it that all of us as Americans do not know that the fountain from which all evil flows is right out of our own heart? And it is very dangerous for us to not know that. For we can see ourselves as sweet and wonderful, sweet and sour, or sour. If we see ourselves as sweet and wonderful, or if our parents bring us up as sweet and wonderful, that is, they bring us up thinking that we are born into this world as a clean slate, and we as parents tell our children, you're sweet and wonderful, you're sweet and wonderful, you're sweet and wonderful, and something goes wrong, our child says, well, my parents told me I was sweet and wonderful, therefore it must be the other guy's fault. And that is the start of communism. For tyranny needs victims. And then our child gets confused also because he doesn't know where this evil is coming from. And therefore he ends up going to a psychologist. Whereas if we as American parents told our children that they are sour by nature, that they are liars by nature, envious by nature, jealous by nature, murderers by nature, thieves by nature, covetousness by nature. And we tell the child, look, you must keep the lid on your evil heart. For if you don't repent over these evil proclivities of your heart, before these evil proclivities become an act of sin and the evil black cat escapes, then you are into immorality because you didn't repent over that evil black cat before he escaped. But if that evil black cat escapes, the child is not confused. The child will not need to go to a psychologist because he will remember that his parents told him that all this evil was in his heart. All he has to do is repent. So why would you need to go to a psychologist? The only psychologist we need is Jesus. We crawl up on his couch and confess our sins, and then he will forgive us of our sins. Fisherman John speaks of this in 1 John chapter 1, verse 3. That which we have seen, that is Jesus, 
and heard, declare we unto you that ye also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and our fellowship is with his Son, Jesus Christ. Verse 4, And these things write we unto you, Americans, that your joy may be full. Verse 5, This then is the message which we had heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him, it is God, is no darkness at all. Verse 6, if we say that we have fellowship with Christ and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. And Jesus is the truth. Verse 7, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, that is with Jesus. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Verse 8, if we say we have no sin, like the people that think that they are sweet and wonderful, we deceive ourselves and the truth, and the truth is Jesus, and the truth, or Jesus is not in us. We remember former Mr. Morality writes in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but it is Christ that lives in me. And Fisherman John again writes, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth, that is Jesus, is not in us. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, we make God a liar and his word, which is Jesus, is not in us that Christ does not literally live in us. If we are a new creation, the spirit of Christ literally lives in it. And we know it is there because it wasn't there before we became a new creation. The spirit of Christ living in us is not our conscience. Our conscience is way behind the spirit of God. We can quench the spirit, grieve the spirit, and as we confess our sins, then we again restore our fellowship with the Spirit of Christ. Now, our fast food free will theologians cannot preach sour. For if 
they preach that the fountain from which all evil in this world flows is right out of our own heart, it negates their free will. It makes their free will doctrine a fiction. So the fast food free will theologians of America, which control most of the over 300,000 churches that we have, have to preach sweet and sour. Sweet and sour is simply morality. But the world or John Q. public that doesn't go to church is always lagging behind the church. So if the church is preaching sweet and sour, then some of John Q. public begins to think sweet and wonderful and the snowball effect finds its genesis. It is similar to a tough coach versus an easy coach. Those of us that desire to have a state championship team not only want a knowledgeable coach, but we want a tough coach, a coach that is going to extract as much out of us as possible that we might beat our competitors. And so we will work very hard for this tough coach, for we can feel that he is desiring for us to be the best we can be in order that we might win that state championship. But what happens if we have a knowledgeable coach that is not a tough coach, that does not drive us, and then we do not have the endurance we need to become that state champion? Then we begin to lag behind, and we are not going to be state championship material. So... Our fast food free will theologians, again, must preach sweet and sour. And what happens then? John Q. Public of America that's not going to church lags behind and begins to believe in sweet and wonderful. These people that see themselves as sweet and wonderful, as we have discussed many times, cannot accept criticism. And thus, the only way they can clear their conscience is to accuse others for the exact same wrong that they have committed. This is rampant in America today. Those of us that are following politics closely see that this is a daily occurrence. Those of us that have been married to a spouse who sees themselves as sweet and wonderful, we find a constant criticism coming towards us. And the moment that we fire back, that person that is sweet and wonderful cannot take it. And thus, the divorce papers will be filed in short order. But those of us Americans who get married and both the wife and the husband see themselves as sour. That is, they, they see that the fountain from which all evil in this world flows is right out of their own heart and they understand that criticism can be helpful that iron sharpens iron and when the criticism is a just criticism then we simply repent over that particular sin and the marriage goes on and what will happen when we as americans that the majority of us see ourselves as sour. We see our own sin nature. What's going to happen? There are going to be less lawsuits. We are not going to be so easily offended and 
sue somebody at the drop of a hat. All the ills in a country, all the infighting results from someone letting the evil black cat out of their heart. Maybe it be envy or jealousy or theft or adultery or fornication or covetousness, etc., etc. But if we as Americans keep the evil black cat in the heart through repentance, just think of the difference it would have on our American society. Because our fast food free will theologians are forced to preach sweet and sour versus sour because sour negates their doctrine of free will, puts us as Americans way behind the curve. For if the bondage of the will doctrine is dominant, what are most Americans going to be doing? They're going to be confessing the evil proclivities of their heart before they escape. If we, as John Q. Public of America, wait until after they escape, it is too late. We are already an immoral country. Therefore, when our fast food free will theologians don't preach sour and preach sweet and sour, they are teaching their members to confess their sin after it becomes an act of sin instead of telling them to confess their original sin before it becomes an act of sin. Thus, when our fast food free will theologians preach sweet and sour, we become an immoral country. And is not that what is happening in America today? Every child brought into this world in America needs to be taught that the fountain from which all evil in this world flows is right out of their own heart, that they are a walking time bomb, and it is necessary that they keep that evil black cat in their heart, lest not only they destroy others, but they destroy themselves. And how do they keep that evil black cat in their heart? But through a constant repentance, because the more we see the evil in our heart, the more we are put into a state of repentance. And that is why Martin Luther, who wrote the 95 Thesis, that is the 95 complaints against the Catholic Church, which ignited the Protestant Reformation on October 31st, 1517, his number one complaint against the Catholic Church at the entire life of the Christian is a state of repentance. Why? Because they are repenting over their original sin before it becomes an act of sin. When we ask our fast food free will theologians and members, who is to blame for the moral meltdown in America? The most common answer that we get is that we are in the last times. But either these pastors or members are drones or are purposely deceiving us. For George Washington was in the last times. James Madison was in the last times. Benjamin Franklin was in the last times. Martin Luther in the 1500s. St. Augustine in the 400s was in the last times. How do we know that? Because Fisherman John told his flock that they were in the last times. So how could the last times be causing us 
as Americans to be in a moral meltdown. First John 2.18. Fisherman John tells his flock the following. Little children, it is the last time. And as ye have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now are there many Antichrists whereby we know that it is the last time. Now, how much clearer can that be than that? How many of us Americans have been deceived into thinking that the moral meltdown in America was because that we are in the last times? This is just a flat out lie or 100% ignorance. Our fast food free will friends and theologians also tend to separate the church from the nation. And yet, what did God do? But he tied the descendants of Abraham to a land, to a nation, the nation Israel. We cannot separate the church and the nation. For who but the church will ever create morality in the nation? If we think of the church as the sun and the nation as the moon, the nation is simply a reflection of the church. And when the true Jesus is dominant, the doctrine of the true Jesus is dominant in America, then the sun or the church is going to shine brightly and thus the nation will be moral. But when we put the fast food free will doctrine as dominant, the fake Jesus is dominant, what do we think is going to happen to the nation? The nation is a reflection of the church. The nation is going to become immoral as it is today. And one of the main reasons for that immorality is because the lack of knowledge of John Q. Public of America by the trickle-down effect is that the fountain from which all evil in this world flows right out of his own heart. And he is born into this world as a walking time bomb. Thus, original sin is sin is not only necessary for a moral nation, but it is also necessary for salvation. For we'll never hunger and thirst after the righteousness of God unless we see that our sin nature is damnable, that our fig leaves of morality cannot eradicate those evil proclivities, and thus our fig leaves of morality cannot make us holy. And common sense tells us that heaven is holy. God cannot bring us into heaven unless we're holy. And the only way we can be holy is if we have the imputed righteousness of Christ, which is his fulfillment of the law for us. And thus Martin Luther, the king of the Reformation, writes the following. The damned are suffering so severely because they were unwilling to be damned. And the reason that they are unwilling to be damned is because at the moment we are made a new creation, God circumcises our heart. And for the first time, 
we see our heart as God does and we are willing to voluntarily condemn ourselves to hell. And it is at that moment that we fly to the righteousness of Jesus Christ as our ticket into heaven. The righteousness of God and the damnableness of our original sin cannot be disconnected one from another. Let us now turn to Pilgrim's Progress, written by John Bunyan in 1678. It is an allegory on salvation. And some say the second most read Christian book in the world. We will turn to the section in Pilgrim's Progress in which the character named Hopeful is describing his conversion to Christian. And Hopeful, in his testimony, explains how his original sin was connected to the righteousness of God. So let us look at just a small excerpt of Hopeful explaining how his original sin was connected to the righteousness of God. But before we read this excerpt, let us also be reminded that many people that come into the Christian church pray and God delivers them from their acts of sin. And thus they ignorantly think that they are saved because they are no longer committing the acts of sin. But as we have mentioned, without sin, that our original sin is sin. And our fig leaves of morality only can cover over those evil proclivities of our heart, but not eradicate them. There is no way for us, by following the commandments, to become holy. The only thing that the commandments can do is expose the evil proclivities of our heart and thus condemning us that we then might fly to the righteousness of God. And it is Christ's obedience then, which is the righteousness of God, that makes us holy from God's point of view. But all we can see is the wretchedness of our own heart. So these sinners enter the fast food free will church and they pull out of the pollutions of the world by following the commandments and they think they're saved. But the problem is they're following the commandments. They're not using the commandments to expose the evil proclivities of their heart that they might need the righteousness of God. In other words, they must not only pull out of the pollutions of the world, but they also must use the law to expose the evil proclivities of their heart that they might see that original sin is sin and is condemnable and is what is condemning us to hell, making us flee to the righteousness of another man, a man who followed the commandments perfectly, who is in fact the second Adam, which is Jesus himself. With that backdrop, let us now turn to Pilgrim's Progress and Christian first speaks to Hopeful. Well, and how did you apply this to yourself, Hopeful? Why, I thought thus with myself. I have by my sins run a great way into God's book and that my now reforming, in other words, he was pulling out of the pollutions of the world. Now my reforming will not pay off that score. Therefore, I should think still under all my present amendments. That is, he was pulling out of the pollutions of the world, 
Maybe he was an alcoholic, he's not drinking, or maybe he was a thief and he's not stealing, etc. Therefore, I should think still under all my present amendments, but how shall I be freed from the damnation that I have brought myself in danger of by my former transgressions? Christian, a very good application. But pray, go on, hopeful. Another thing that hath troubled me, even since my late amendments, I pulled out of the pollutions of the world, is that if I look narrowly into the best of what I do now, I still see sin, new sin. Well, what new sin? It's the new sin of original sin. He's beginning to see the original sin in his heart, the evil proclivities in his heart. Former Mr. Morality says it this way. I find a law, that is a principle, that when I would do good, that is when I try to follow the commandments, I find that evil is present with me. What evil? The evil proclivities of my heart. Maybe we are driving an old clunker and we envy our neighbor's brand new car. Or maybe we covet our neighbor's wife, etc., etc. Again, Hopeful says, Another thing that hath troubled me, even since my late amendments, is that if I look narrowly into the best of what I do, notice he says the best of what he does, I now see sin, new sin, that is, original sin, mixing itself with the best of that I do, so that now I am forced to conclude that notwithstanding my former fond conceits of myself and duties, I, hopeful, have committed sin enough in one day to send me to hell, though my former life had been faultless. Christian, and what did you do then? Hopeful. Do? I could not tell what to do till I break my mind to faithful. For he and I were acquainted, and he told me that unless I could obtain the righteousness of a man that never had sinned, neither mine own nor all the righteousness of the world could save me. Christian, and did you think he spake true? Hopeful, had he told me so when I was pleased and satisfied with mine own amendments, I had called him a fool for his pains. But now, since I see my own infirmity, that is my self-righteousness, and the sin that cleaves to my best performances, that is original sin, when I would do good, evil is present with me, is what former Mr. Morality says. Neither mine own nor all the righteous of the world could save me. 
Christian, and did you think he spake true, hopeful? Had he told me so when I was pleased and satisfied with mine own amendments, I had called him a fool for his pains. But now, since I see my own infirmities and the sin that cleaves to my best performances, I have been forced to be of his opinion. I'm seeing the evil proclivities of my heart and those evil proclivities cannot be eradicated. So there's no way I can be made holy by the fig leaves of morality. Therefore, I'm of the opinion that I need the righteousness of a man that never sinned. And who is that but the Lord Jesus? Christian, but did you think when at first he suggested it to you that there was such a man to be found of whom it might justly be said that he never committed a sin? Hopeful. I must confess the words at first sounded strangely, but after a little more talk and company with faithful, I had full conviction about it. Christian, and did you ask faithful what man this was and how you must be justified by him? Hopeful, yes. And he told me it was the Lord Jesus that dwells on the right hand of the Most High. And thus, said he, you must be justified by him that is found innocent in God's courtroom, in his father's courtroom, by him, even by trusting to what he hath done by himself in the days of his flesh. And what did he do there? In the days of his flesh, while Jesus was here on earth, what did he do? He fulfilled the moral law perfectly for us. To what he had done by himself, what Jesus did by himself in the days of his flesh while he was here on earth. And what did he do after he fulfilled the commandments perfectly? He went to the cross, right? And he was made original sin for us and condemned to hell by his father in our stead. And thus said he, you must be justified by him even by trusting to what he hath done by himself in the days of his flesh and suffered when he did hang on the tree. I asked him further how that man's righteousness could be of that efficacy to justify another before God. In other words, justify means to be found innocent in God's courtroom. So how is it possible that somebody else's fulfillment of the moral law, which is the Lord Jesus, how is it possible that we could get his righteousness in order that we might be found innocent or justified in our Father's courtroom in heaven? How that man's righteousness could be of that efficacy to justify another before God and he told me he was the mighty God and did what he did and died the death also, not for himself, but for me, 
to whom his doings, that is, follow the commandments, to whom his doings and the worthiness of them, he fulfilled them perfectly, should be imputed to me if I believed on him. Christian, and what did you do then? Hopeful, I made my objections against my believing for that I thought he was not willing to save me. Christian, and what said faithful to you then? Hopeful, he bade me to go to him and see. Then I said, it was presumption. But faithful said, no, for I was invited to come. Then he gave me a book. Then faithful gave hopeful a book of Jesus indicting to encourage me the more freely to come. And he said concerning that book that every jot and tittle thereof stood firmer than heaven and earth. That is, that the Bible, that every jot and tittle thereof of the Bible stood firmer than heaven and earth. Then I asked him, what must do when I came? And he told me, I must entreat upon my knees with all my heart and soul the Father to reveal him to me. Now, if we remember, we've talked about this many times, that Jesus came to his disciples and he said, who do people say that I am? And, and the disciples said, well, some say that you're Elijah, some say you're Jeremiah, etc." But then Jesus says, well, what do you, my disciples, who do you, my disciples, say that I am? And Peter says, well, thou art Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said unto Simon Barjona, that is to Peter, flesh and blood hath not taught you this, but my father in heaven revealed to you who I was. It was only by revelation. Then if we remember, former Mr. Morality himself says, I was not taught of man nor received it from man, but it was by revelation. The only way that we can come to know the true Jesus is if the Father, that is our Father in heaven, reveals him to us. We are blinded and he must open our eyes to be able to see who he is. We all can see the Son of Man and the miracles he did and we, if Jesus were here in America today, we could speak to him and listen to his admonitions. But there's a difference between the Son of Man. We can only see and hear the Son of Man. We cannot hear the Son of God. For the Son of God speaks spiritually. And it's only the spiritual that can see the spiritual or hear the spiritual. Again, then I, hopeful, asked faithful, what must do when I came? And he told me, I must entreat upon my knees with all my heart and soul the Father to reveal Jesus to me. Then I asked him further, 
how I must make my supplication to him. That is, he has fervent prayer to him. And he said, go, and thou shalt find him upon a mercy seat where he sits all the year long to give pardon and forgiveness to them that come. I told Faithful that I knew not what to say when I came. And Faithful bid me say to this effect, God, be merciful to me a sinner and make me to know and believe in Jesus Christ. Notice he says, make me. God, make me to believe and to know Jesus Christ. For I see that if his righteousness had not been, if Jesus has not fulfilled the moral law for me, or I have not faith in that righteousness, I am utterly cast away. Now, why is that? It's very simple. When God looks down from heaven, if we have the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ, he sees his son's perfect obedience as our perfect obedience. For I see that if his righteousness had not been, if I didn't have that perfect righteousness, I would not be holy. And what is holy? Holy means the commandments have to be fulfilled perfectly. And it is only Jesus, the second Adam, that fulfilled those commandments perfectly. So if we do not have the righteousness of God, we can't be holy. Heaven is holy. And there's no way to go to heaven unless we're holy. And we can't be holy unless we have the righteousness of God. So again, faithful tells hopeful to pray like this. God be merciful to me, a sinner, and make me to know and make me to believe in Jesus Christ. For I see that if his righteousness had not been, or I have not faith in that righteousness, I am utterly cast away. Why? Because it's only the righteousness of God that can make me holy in order to be admitted into heaven. Lord, I have heard that thou art a merciful God and hast ordained that thy son, Jesus Christ, should be the savior of the world. And moreover, that thou art willing to bestow him upon such a poor sinner as I am. And I am a sinner indeed. Lord, take therefore this opportunity and magnify thy grace. And what is grace? That's the righteousness of God. And magnify thy grace in the salvation of my soul through thy Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Christian. And did you do as you were bidden? Hopeful. Yes. Over and over and over, over and over and over, I prayed that prayer. 
that faithful told me to pray. And Christian said, And did you do as you were bidden? Hopeful, yes, over and over and over. Christian, and did the Father reveal the Son to you? Hopeful, no. Not at first, nor second, nor third, nor fourth, nor fifth. No, nor at the sixth time either. Christian, what did you do then? Hopeful, what? Why, I could not tell what to do. Christian, had you no thoughts of leaving off praying? Hopeful, yes, and a hundred times twice told. Christian, and what was the reason you did not? Hopeful, I believed that it was true, which had been told me, to wit, that without the righteousness of Christ, all the world could not save me. It's really common sense, is it not? The first Adam, before he sinned, was fully capable of keeping God's commandments perfectly. He was made in the image of God, which means he had no sin. But after he and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit, they took on the nature of Satan, who was a liar and a murderer from the beginning. And now Adam cannot get back into heaven because he's a liar by nature. He that is, Adam, needs to be like he was before he got driven out. And what was he like before he got driven out? He was holy. So for Adam to get back in, he has to again be holy. And there's no way for any of us to be holy, including Adam, unless the second Adam comes down and does what the first Adam didn't do. And what did the first Adam not do? The first Adam did not fulfill the commandments perfectly. Or if he had, have, none of us would have died. We're only dying because Adam broke that one commandment. So again, common sense tells us that Adam would have to be like what he was before he got kicked out. He was holy before he got kicked out. He again needs to be holy. He can't be holy unless the second Adam fulfills the commandments for him. We can't be holy unless the second Adam fulfills the commandments for us. And when the second Adam fulfills the commandments for us, what is that called? The righteousness of God, which includes his passive obedience, taking on hell for us, and his active obedience, fulfilling the moral law for us. Therefore, we need the righteousness of a man that never sinned, and that man happened to be Jesus. So let us review for a moment. So faithful tells him to pray the prayer. Then Christian says, and did you do as you were bidden? Hopeful. Yes, over and over and over. I prayed that prayer over and over and over. Christian. And did the Father reveal the Son to you? Hopeful. No, not at first, nor second, nor third, nor fourth, nor fifth, 
No, nor at the sixth time. I prayed six times and the Father in heaven, my Father in heaven did not reveal Jesus to me. Christian, what did you do then? Hopeful, what? Why, I could not tell what to do. Christian, had you no thoughts of leaving off praying? Hopeful, yes, and a hundred times twice told. Christian, and what was the reason you did not? Hopeful, I believed that it was true, which had been told me, to wit, that without the righteousness of this Christ, all the world could not save me. And therefore thought I with myself, if I leave off praying, I die an eternal death. And I can but die at the throne of grace. And with all, this came into my mind. If it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come and will not tarry. That is a quote out of the Old Testament. So I hopeful continued praying until the Father showed me his Son. Christian, and how was Christ revealed unto you? Hopeful, I did not see him with my bodily eyes, but with the eyes of mine understanding. And thus it was one day I was very sad. I think sadder than at any time in my life. And this sadness was through a fresh sight of the greatness and vileness of my sins. See, he was beginning to see the evil proclivities of his heart, the condemnableness of the evil proclivities of his heart. And that's why Martin Luther said, the damned are suffering so severely because they were unwilling to be damned. They had never seen the damnableness of their sin nature. And thus it was one day, I hopeful was very sad. I think sadder than at any time in my life. And this sadness was through a fresh sight of the greatness and vileness of my sins. And as I was then looking for nothing but hell. See, it was at this moment that he saw his heart as God does. And God does this for us when he circumcises our heart. So he saw at that moment that he deserved to go to hell because no matter how much morality he did, he couldn't eradicate the evil proclivities of his heart. Therefore, he could not make himself holy. And thus, the only other option is to flee to what the second Adam did for us, which is the righteousness of God. He fulfilled the moral law for us. And thus it was one day, I was very sad. I think sadder than at any time in my life. And this sadness was through a fresh sight of the greatness and vileness of my sins. And as I was then looking for nothing but hell and the everlasting damnation of my soul. P. 
people that are truly born again, this will happen. You will see the evilness of your heart at that moment of conversion. If you haven't seen this, you haven't quite arrived. There is sometimes a surrender where we have no fingerprints on it. But this is different. And this has to happen to be saved. You have to be able to see your heart as God does before you will ever flee to the righteousness of God. As we have mentioned many times, we are all, as natural men Americans, born into this world with believing that the fig leaves of morality is our ticket into heaven. And it is very difficult to get rid of that idol because it is our security blanket. But once we see our heart as God sees, we see the uselessness of the fig leaves of morality. They can't eradicate our evil heart. So our there's a death to that idol. There's a death to that fig leaves of morality. And once there's a death to that fig leaves of morality, we're left naked before the evilness of our heart. Now, what is the only option left? But by faith to fly to the righteousness of God. And thus it was one day. I was very sad. I think sadder than any one time in my life. And this sadness was through a fresh sight of the greatness and vileness of my sins. And as I was then looking for nothing but hell and the everlasting damnation of my soul, suddenly, as I thought, I saw the Lord Jesus looking down from heaven upon me and saying, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. See, it was at this point he saw the futility of the fig leaves of morality. And so he believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. What did he believe? He believed that Jesus fulfilled the moral law for him by faith. Again, and as I was then looking for nothing but hell and the everlasting damnation of my soul. Suddenly, as I thought, I saw the Lord Jesus looking down from heaven upon me and saying to me, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. But I hopeful replied, Lord, I am a great a very great sinner. And he answered, my grace is sufficient for thee. My righteousness of God is sufficient for me. Remember that grace is unmerited favor. And what is the unmerited favor? But Jesus fulfilling the commandments for us as a gift to us. Unmerited favor. But I replied, Lord, I am a great sinner, a very great sinner. And he answered, my grace is sufficient for thee. Then I hopeful said, but Lord, 
what is believing? And then I saw from that saying, he that comes to me shall never hunger. And he that believes on me shall never thirst. That believing and coming were one. And that he that came, that is, that ran out in his heart and affections after salvation by Christ, he indeed believed in Christ. Then the water stood in mine eyes and I asked further, but Lord, may such a great sinner as I am be indeed accepted of thee and be saved by thee. And I heard him say, and him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. Then I said, but how, Lord, must I consider of thee in my coming to thee, that my faith may be placed aright upon thee? Then he said, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believes. In other words, he's the end of the law of self-righteousness. He's the end of the fig leaves of morality to everyone that believes. Why? Because he's the end of it because he now fulfilled the moral law for us. So we don't need our fig leaves of morality. The law now does two things. It exposes the evil proclivities of our heart and the law demands perfection. The law can only condemn. It cannot save us. The law shows our impotence that we might fly to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. He died for our sins. He took on our original sin and therefore took on hell for us and rose again for our justification. The resurrection is proof that Jesus fulfilled the moral law for us because his father in heaven could not have raised him from the dead if he had broken one commandment. He had had to stay in hell. So he rose again for our justification. He rose again, proving that he fulfilled the moral law for us and he was going to impute it to us, thus making us justified. Justification is a legal term for innocent in God's courtroom. He loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. And how did he do that? By taking on hell for us. He is a mediator between God and us. Our Father in heaven had to curse his own son to get us off the hook. We are born into this world with our Father in heaven angry with us. But Jesus is the mediator between his Father and us to subdue his wrath. Jesus subdued the wrath of his Father by fulfilling the commandments for us. 
Jesus is the mediator between God the Father and us. He ever lives to make intercession for us. From all which I gathered, that I must look for the righteousness in his person and for the satisfaction for my sins by his blood. So by the blood, he took on hell for us. But Jesus, who knew no sin, Jesus, who fulfilled the commandments perfectly, was made original sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God. So he who knew no sin, that's his person. His person was that he was holy, from which I, hopeful, gathered that I must look for righteousness in his person because he fulfilled the moral law perfectly for us. Thus he was holy. And for the satisfaction of my sins by his blood, that what he did in obedience by following the commandments perfectly to his father's law, he kept his father's commandments perfectly, and in submitting to the penalty thereof, he voluntarily, in other words, his passive obedience was that he voluntarily took on our original sin and thus his Father in heaven had to curse him to hell for us. So he did our jail sentence for us and we were released or pardoned from jail, but just getting out of jail. Sometimes our fast food free will friends are saying we believe that Jesus died for our sins, that we would go to heaven. But it's that's only half of it. Because not only did Jesus die for our sins, but he had to be resurrected to prove that he also fulfilled the commandments for us. So it takes both his active obedience, following the commandments, and his passive obedience, taking on hell, which is the righteousness of God, to make us fit for heaven. From all which I gathered, that I must look for the righteousness in his person and for the satisfaction of my sins by his blood, that what he did in obedience by following his father's commandments perfectly, that what he did in obedience to his father's law and in submitting, that is passively submitting, to the penalty thereof, was not for himself. He fulfilled the moral law for us, not for himself. He passively took on hell, not for himself, but in our stead as a gift to us. Again, from all which I gathered that I must look for righteousness in his person and for the satisfaction of my sins by his blood that what he did in obedience to his father's law and in passively submitting to the penalty thereof was not for himself, but for him that will accept it for his salvation and be thankful. And now was my heart full of joy, mine eyes full of tears, and my affections running over with love 
to the name, people, and ways of Jesus Christ. Christian, this was a revelation of Christ to your soul indeed. But tell me particularly what effect this had upon your spirit. Hopeful, it made me see that all the world, notwithstanding all the righteousness thereof, that is the self-righteousness, they believe it's a morality, is in a state of condemnation. It made me see that God the Father, because he be just, can justly justify the coming sinner. It made me greatly ashamed of the vileness of my formal life and confounded me with the sense of mine own ignorance for there never came thought into mine heart before now that showed me so the beauty of Jesus Christ. It made me love a holy life and long to do something for the honor and glory of the name of the Lord Jesus. Yea, I thought that had I now a thousand gallons of blood in my body, I could spill it all for the sake of the Lord Jesus. Now, there is a reason that this book, Pilgrim's Progress, has not been out of print, some say, since 1678, and is one of the most influential Christian books ever written. Because to those of us who have been truly converted, and we have seen the condemnable nature of our heart at that moment of conversion, these words of John Bunyan ring true. What we just read here was one of the most accurate descriptions of what happens at conversion ever written. At this point, let us go back to the beginning of how he came to be converted. For we jumped into his conversion in the middle of it. So now let us return back to the beginning of his description of his testimony and how he got converted. The subtitle is The Enchanted Ground. I saw then in my dream that they went all till they came into a certain country whose air naturally tended to make one drowsy if he came a stranger into it. And here Hopeful began to be very dull and heavy of sleep. Wherefore he said unto Christian, I do now begin to grow drowsy, that I can scarcely hold up mine eyes. Let us lie down here and take one nap. Christian, by no means, said the other, lest sleeping we never awake more. Hopeful, why, my brother, sleep is sweet to the laboring man. We may be refreshed if we take a nap. Christian, do you not remember that one of the shepherds bade us beware of the enchanted ground? He meant by that that we should beware of sleeping 
Wherefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober, hopeful. I acknowledge myself in a fault. And had I been here alone, I had by my sleeping run the danger of death. I see it is true that the wise man saith, two are better than one. Hitherto hath my company been my mercy, and thou shalt have a good reward for thy labor. Christian, now then said Christian, to prevent drowsiness in this place, let us fall into good discourse, hopeful. With all my heart, said the other. Christian, where shall we begin? Hopeful, where God began with us. But do you begin, if you please. Christian, I will sing you first this song. When saints do sleepy grow, let them come hither and hear how these two pilgrims talk together. Yea, let them learn of them in any wise. Thus to keep open their drowsy slumbering eyes. Saints fellowship, if it be managed well, keeps them awake and that in spite of hell. Christian, then Christian began and said, I will ask you a question. How come you to think at first of so doing as you do now? Hopeful. Do you mean, how came I at first to look after the good of my soul? Christian. Yes, that is my meaning. Hopeful. I continued a great while in the delight of those things which are seen and sold at our fair things which, as I believe now, would have, had I continued in them still, drowned me in perdition and destruction. Christian, what things were they? Hopeful. All the treasures and riches of the world. Also, I delighted much in rioting, reveling, drinking, swearing, lying, uncleanness, Sabbath-breaking, and whatnot that tended to destroy the soul. But I found at last by hearing and considering of the things that are divine, which indeed I heard of you as also of beloved faithful that was put to death for his faith and good living in Vanity Fair, that the end of these things is death and that for these things sake, the wrath of God comes upon the children of disobedience. Christian, and did you presently fall under the power of this conviction? Hopeful, no. I was not willing presently to know the evil of sin, nor the damnation that follows upon the commission of it, but endeavored when my mind at first began to be shaken with the word to shut my eyes against the light thereof. Christian, but what was the cause of your carrying of it thus to be the first workings of blessed spirit upon you? Hopeful, the causes were, number one, I was ignorant 
that this was the work of God upon me. I never thought that by awakenings for sin, God at first begins the conversion of a sinner. Number two, sin was yet very sweet to my flesh and I was loth to leave it. Number three, I could not tell how to part with my old companions. Their presence and actions were so desirable unto me. Number four, the hours in which convictions were upon me were such troublesome and such heart of frightening hours that I could not bear. No, not so much as the remembrance of them upon my heart. Christian, then, as it seems, sometimes you got rid of your trouble, hopeful. Yes, verily, but it would come into my mind again, and then I should be as bad, nay, worse than I was before. Christian, why, what was it that brought your sins to mind again? Hopeful, many things. Number one, if I did but meet a good man in the streets, or number two, if I have heard any read in the Bible, or number three, if my head did begin to ache, or number four, if I were told that some of my neighbors were sick, or number five, if I heard the bell toll for some that were dead, or number six, if I thought of dying myself, or number seven, if I heard that sudden death happened to others, or number eight, but especially when I thought of myself, that I must quickly come to judgment. Christian, and could you at any time with ease get off of the guilt of sin when by any of these ways it came upon you? Hopeful, no, not laterally. For then they got faster hold of my conscience. And then if I but did Think of going back to sin. Though my mind was turned against it, it would be double torment to me. Christian, and how did you do then? Hopeful, I thought I must endeavor to mend my life or else thought I, I am sure to be damned. Christian, and did you endeavor to mend? Hopeful, yes, and fled from and not only my sins, but sinful company too, and betook me to religious duties as praying, reading, weeping for sin, speaking truth to my neighbors, and so on. These things I did with many others too much here to relate. Christian, and did you think yourself well then? Hopeful. Yes, for a while, but at the last, my trouble came tumbling upon me again, and that over the neck of all my reformations. Christian, how came that about, since you were now reformed? Hopeful, 
there were several things brought it upon me, especially such sayings as these. All our righteousness are as filthy rags. By the works of the law, that is by the fig leaves of morality, shall no flesh be justified, found innocent in God's courtroom. When you have done all these things, say we are unprofitable with many more such like. From whence I began to reason with myself thus, if all my righteousness are as filthy rags, that is self-righteousness, if by the deeds of the law, that is trying to follow the law, no man can be justified, no man can be found innocent in God's courtroom. And if when we have done all, we are yet unprofitable, then tis but a folly to think of heaven by the law or by the fig leaves of morality. I further thought thus, if a man runs 100 pounds into the shopkeeper's debt, and after that shall pay for all that he shall fetch, yet if his old debt stands still in book uncrossed, for that the shopkeeper may sue him and cast him into prison till he shall pay for the debt. Christian, well, and how did you apply this to yourself? Hopeful. Why, I thought with myself, I have, by my sins, run a great way into God's book, and that my now reforming, in other words, he was pulling out of the pollutions of the world, no longer drinking, no longer committing adultery, no longer stealing, and after that shall pay for that he shall fetch, and if his old debt stands still in the book uncrossed, for that the shopkeeper may sue him and cast him into prison till he shall pay the debt. Christian, well, and how did you apply this to yourself? Hopeful, why, I thought thus with myself. I have by my sins run a great way into God's book and that my now reforming will not pay off that score. Therefore, I should think still under my present amendments, but how shall I be freed from the damnation that I have brought myself in danger of by my former transgressions. Christian, a very good supplication, but pray go on, hopeful. Another thing that hath troubled me, even since my late amendments, is that if I look narrowly into the best of what I do now, I still See sin, new sin, that is the original sin. Now we're back to where we started in the middle of his conversion. Let us read just a little bit further. Hopeful. And another thing that hath troubled me, 
even since my late amendments, is that if I look narrowly into the best of what I do now, I still see sin, new sin, that's original sin, mixing itself with the best of that I do. Former Mr. Morality says, I find a law that when I would do good, when I would follow the commandments, evil is present with me. King David said, I acknowledge my transgression, but now my sin nature is ever before me against thee and thee only have I sinned. So the more we begin to see the evil proclivities of our heart, the more we will be in a constant state of repentance. Again, another thing that hath troubled me, even since my late amendments, is that if I look narrowly into the best of what I do now, I still see sin, new sin, original sin, mixing itself with the best that I do, so that now I am forced to conclude that notwithstanding my former fond conceits of myself and duties, I have committed sin enough in one day to send me to hell, though my former life had been faultless. Christian, and what did you do then? Hopeful. Do? I could not tell what to do till I break my mind to faithful. For he and I were well acquainted, and he told me that unless I could obtain the righteousness of a man that never sinned, neither mine own nor all the righteousness of the world could save me. Christian, and did you think he spake true? Hopeful. Had he told me so when I was pleased and satisfied with mine own amendments, I had called him a fool for his pains. But now, since I see my own infirmity and the sin that cleaves to my best performances, I have been forced to be of his opinion. He was seeing the evil proclivities of his heart and that they were ineradicable and that the big leaves of morality could not make him holy. That original sin was sin, even if he never committed one act of sin. It was his original sin that was condemning him. And he realized that the fig leaves of morality were nothing more than a work of futility, for the fig leaves of morality could not make him holy. And thus he had to hunger and thirst for the righteousness of God as his ticket in heaven in order to make him holy. Again, another thing that hath troubled me even since my late amendments is that if I look narrowly into the best of what I do now, I still see sin, new sin, the evil proclivities of his heart, mixing itself with the best of that I do, so that now I am forced to conclude that notwithstanding former fond conceits of myself, and duties. I have committed enough sin in one day to send me to hell, 
though my former life had been faultless. Christian, and what did you do then? Hopeful, do. I could not tell what to do till I break my mind to faithful. For he and I were well acquainted. And he told me that unless I could obtain the righteousness of a man that never had sinned, neither mine own nor all the righteousness of the world could save me. Christian, and did you think he spake true? Hopeful, had he told me so when I was pleased and satisfied with mine own amendments? Again, after he had pulled out of the pollutions of the world. Many times we may have a conversion which we may think is the real deal in which we surrendered and had no fingerprints on it. It was like a surrender. It happened to us, just like our natural birth. But it was not a death. And so what we do is we begin to pull out of the pollutions of the world. And we're not drinking any longer. We're not swearing any longer. We're not doing the things of the world any longer. And we think, because of our amendments, that we are saved. And so Hopeful says, Had he told me so when I was pleased and satisfied with my own amendments, I was now following the commandments pretty good. Nothing like what it was when I was in the world. I had called him a fool for his pains, but now since I see mine own affirmity and the sin that cleaves to my best performance, I'm seeing those evil proclivities that when I would do good, my evil sin nature is present with me. I have been forced to be of his opinion. Christian, but did you think when at first he suggested it to you that there was such a man to be found of whom it might justly be said that he never committed a sin? And who was that? Was Jesus. He who knew no sin. Jesus who knew no sin was made original sin. Our evil proclivities came upon Jesus. The evil proclivities of the elect, original sin of the elect, was put upon Jesus by his father. And thus Jesus had to be cursed to hell. Hopeful, I must confess, the words at first sounded strangely, but after a little more talk and company with him, I had full conviction about it. Christian, and did you ask him what man this was? and how you must be justified by him. That is, be found innocent in your father's courtroom. Christian, and did you ask him what man this was and how you must be justified, found innocent by him? Hopeful, yes. And he told me it was the Lord Jesus that dwells on the right hand of the Most High. And thus, said he, you must be justified by him by trusting to what he hath done by himself in the days of his flesh. And what did he do while he was here in the flesh during his time on earth? He 
fulfilled the moral law perfectly for his elect. Again, what he had done by himself in the days of his flesh and suffered. And what did he suffer? He who knew no sin, Jesus who knew no sin, was made sin. What sin? Was made original sin by his father. Why? But for the fact that we might be made the righteousness of God. And thus, said he, you must be justified by him, even by trusting to what he hath done by himself in the days of his flesh while he was here on earth and suffered. He took on original sin and suffered when he did hang on the tree. I asked him further how that man's righteousness could be of that efficacy to justify another before God. And he told me he was the mighty God and did what he did and died the death also, not for himself. He didn't fulfill the commandments for himself, for he was already holy by nature, but he fulfilled the commandments for what? For us. He was put under the law the same law that Adam was. And what law was Adam under? But the law of perfection. And he told me he was the mighty God and did what he did and died the death also, not for himself, but for me, to whom his doings and the worthiness of them should be imputed if I believed on him. Christian, and what did you do then? Hopeful, I made my objections against my believing for that I thought he was not willing to save me. Christian, and what said faithful to you then? Hopeful, he bade me go to him and see. Then I said it was presumption, but he said no. For I was invited to come. Then he gave me a book of Jesus indicting to encourage me the more freely to come. And he said concerning that book that every jot and tittle thereof stood firmer than heaven and earth. Then I asked him, what must do when I came? And he told me, I must entreat upon my knees with all my heart and soul, the Father to reveal him to me. Then I asked further how I must make my supplication to him. And he said, go and thou shalt find him upon a mercy seat where he sits all the year long to give pardon and forgiveness to them that come. Now this is worth rereading again so that it will sink into our brains what a true conversion is like. I told him that I knew not what to say when I came. And he bid me say to this effect, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, and make me to know and believe in Jesus Christ. Notice again, make 
me to know and believe in Jesus Christ. For I see that if his righteousness had not been, or I have not faith in that righteousness, I am utterly cast away. And why is he utterly cast away as all of us natural men Americans would be cast away when we are born into this world? Except for the fact that Adam, before he fell, was holy. And what does it mean to be holy? But that Adam could keep his father's commandments perfectly. But once he ate of the forbidden fruit, he broke God's commandment and thus was driven out of the Garden of Eden. And now, since he believed Satan over God, God gave him over to Satan and gave him a nature in likeness to Satan. And what was Satan's nature like? He was a liar, the father of lies, and a murderer from the beginning. For even Cain in the first family murdered his brother Abel, for Abel had the righteousness of God. Therefore, in order for Adam to get back into the Garden of Eden or back into heaven, he would have to be like what he was before he was driven out. And what was he like? He was holy. He could keep God's commandments perfectly. Therefore, in order to get back in, he again would have to be holy. And if he cannot become holy, he would be utterly cast away unless he had the imputed righteousness of the man that never sinned, which was Jesus Christ. Back to hopeful, or I have not faith in that righteousness. I am utterly cast away. Lord, I have heard that thou art a merciful God and hast ordained that thy son, Jesus Christ, should be the savior of the world. And moreover, that thou art willing to bestow him upon such a poor sinner as I am. And I am a sinner indeed because of my original sin. Lord, take therefore this opportunity and magnify thy grace in the salvation of my soul through thy son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Christian, and did you do as you were bidden, hopeful, yes, over and over and over. Now, our fast food free will friends tell us to ask Jesus into our heart. And if we do that, then we're automatically saved. But here we see we can pray over and over again. And it may take years before Jesus finds us and makes us a new creation and we have no fingerprints of free will upon it and so he's praying over and over sometimes it may take five minutes sometimes it may take 17 years or maybe it will be a deathbed conversion christian and did you do as you were bidden hopeful yes over and over and over, Christian. And did the Father reveal the Son to you? Again, we cannot emphasize enough that the only way we can know 
who the Son of God is, is by revelation. And we've repeated this over and over before. But Jesus said to his disciples, who do people say that I am? Some say he was Elijah, John the Baptist, etc. But then he said, but who do you, my disciples, say I am? And Peter says, thou art Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to Peter, flesh and blood has not revealed this unto you, but my Father in heaven has revealed it unto you. You cannot come to know who the Son of God is via understanding. It is only by revelation. Christian, and did the Father reveal the Son to you? Hopeful, no, not at first, nor second, nor third, nor fourth, nor fifth, no, nor at the sixth time either. Christian, what did you do then? Hopeful, what? Why, I could not tell what to do. Christian, had you no thoughts of leaving off praying? Hopeful, yes, and a hundred times twice told. Christian, and what was the reason you did not? Hopeful, I believe that it was true, which had been told me, to wit that without the righteousness of this Christ, all the world could not save me. And therefore, thought I with myself, if I leave off, I die. And I can but die at the throne of grace. And with all this came into my mind, if it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come and will not tarry. So I continued praying until the Father showed me his Son. Those of us that are of the elect have something in us that wants to know the truth. For if there is no absolute truth, there is no absolute right or wrong. And then it just becomes one opinion, one person's opinion against another person's opinion. But as we look at the universe, and we send our astronauts to the moon. That is impossible unless the laws of the universe are constant. So we say to ourselves, there has to be an absolute truth. The problem is with us. We have this sin nature which distorts everything. But common sense tells us there must be an absolute truth. And that absolute truth happens to be Jesus Christ. But that absolute truth cannot be known unless our Father in heaven reveals the absolute truth to us, reveals Jesus to us. And then former Mr. Morality, who hated Jesus Christ after the Father revealed Jesus to him, he now was able to say, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I. But it is Christ that lives in me. His spirit literally lives in me. And now I pick up the Old Testament in which I, former Mr. Morality, was above my equals. I was a rising star. I was a scholar, a good scholar. 
and I started to reread that same Old Testament. And as I read it, I said to myself, that idiot fisherman was right and I was wrong. He had the correct doctrine and with all my knowledge and all my understanding, I did not have the correct doctrine for the absolute truth had never been revealed to me, but it had been revealed to Jesus' disciples, even though they were unschooled in comparison to me. And so now I have a cross-reference. I have the literal, absolute truth in me. And I, as I read that Old Testament again, I can cross-reference the two, and I'm reading about myself. And I know for sure that it is the absolute truth now. And I have the Holy Spirit, which is in me, to teach me how to interpret the Bible. Now, Fisherman John confirms this. We must remember that Fisherman John was a fisherman. He wasn't an educated person. And the Apostle Paul, or former Mr. Morality himself, was a rising star amongst the Pharisees. For he himself says, I was above my equals as a Pharisee. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, that is, trust in his big leaves of morality, I more. In other words, if you think you're moral, I can assure you I was more moral. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law, a Pharisee. And what did Jesus say? That our righteousness, as natural men Americans, must be greater than the righteousness of the Pharisees. The Pharisees were a moral people, but morality will not get us to heaven. That's why we call the Apostle Paul former Mr. Morality. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness, which is of the law, blameless. I was so moral that I ignorantly thought I was blameless before the law which was a joke for Jesus himself says, therefore be ye perfect as my father in heaven is perfect. And I agree with Jesus now. Oh, how ignorant I was. But what things were gained to me, that is former Mr. Morality, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, all those things that I did as a fast food free will Pharisee, all that morality, all that hard work to follow the commandments as best I could. I now count loss for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung, that is manure, 
that I might win Christ and be found in Christ, not having mine own self-righteousness, which is of the law, not my own ability to follow the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Former Mr. Morality now knew that the ticket into heaven was the righteousness of God by faith. It is Christ's obedience, both his passive and active obedience, which is imputed to us by faith. For when the righteousness of God is imputed to us by faith, it makes us holy. For when our Father looks down from heaven, he sees now his Son's obedience as our own perfect obedience. And that becomes our ticket into heaven, for it makes us holy. Adam, before he fell, was holy. For us to get back into heaven, we need to be holy. And we can only be holy by faith in the righteousness of God. Fisherman John knew this as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Were I the highly educated Pharisee, one of the most moral guys in town was totally ignorant of this until my father in heaven revealed who Jesus really was on Damascus Road. Fisherman John had the right interpretation of the Bible where I had the wrong interpretation as a Pharisee. And why is that? But Fisherman John writes in 1 John chapter 2, verse 26. These things I, Fisherman John, have written unto you concerning them that seduce you. Verse 27. But the anointing which ye have received of him. The anointing would be the Holy Spirit the anointing of the Holy Spirit. But the anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you. The Holy Spirit abides in you. And ye need not that any man teach you. But as the same anointing teaches you of all things and is truth. And who is truth but Jesus? And is Jesus. And is no lie. There is no lie in Jesus. And even as it hath taught you, ye shall abide in him. The only reason that Fisherman John could say this, because he himself experienced it as he read his Old Testament after he became a new creation. Our fast food free will friends constantly have to be looking to see what other men's interpretation of the Bible is, for they are not confident of their own interpretation because they do not have Christ literally living in them and the Holy Spirit also abiding in them. Now back to Pilgrim's Progress. I told him that I knew not what to say when I came, 
And he bid me say to this effect, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, and make me to know and believe in Jesus Christ. Notice it says, make me to know and believe in Jesus Christ. For I see that if his righteousness had not been, or I have not faith in that righteousness, I am utterly cast away. Lord, I have heard that thou art a merciful God and hast ordained that thy son, Jesus Christ, should be the savior of the world. And moreover, that thou art willing to bestow him upon such a poor sinner as I am. And I am a sinner indeed. Lord, take therefore this opportunity and magnify thy grace. And what is grace? It is faith in the righteousness of God. For grace is unmerited favor. And the righteousness of God is unmerited favor. And faith is also a gift. So it's unmerited favor. Thou art a merciful God and hast ordained that thy son Jesus Christ should be the savior of the world. And moreover, that thou art willing to bestow him upon such a poor sinner as I am, and I am a sinner indeed. Lord, therefore take this opportunity and magnify thy grace, the righteousness of God, faith in the righteousness of God, in the salvation of my soul through thy Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Christian, and did you do as you were bidden, hopeful? Yes, over and over and over. Christian, and did the Father reveal the Son to you? We can't emphasize that enough. We can know who the Son of Man is. He did all the miracles. We can read what he says in the Bible. But we can't understand what the Son of God says because the Son of God is spiritual. And we must be spiritual to understand the spiritual. And we're not spiritual until we become a new creation. And then the Father reveals his Son to us. And then in turn, the Son reveals to us the Father. And we cry, Abba, Father, for at that moment is the first time that we know our spiritual Father. Christian, and did the Father reveal the Son to you? Hopeful. No, not at first, nor second, nor third, nor fourth, nor fifth. No, nor at the sixth time either. Christian, what did you do then? Hopeful. What? Why, I could not tell what to do. Christian, had you no thoughts of leaving off praying? Hopeful. Yes. 
and a hundred times twice told. Christian, and what was the reason that you did not? Hopeful, I believed that it was true, which had been told me to wit, that without the righteousness of this Christ, all the world could not save me. Now, this is really not hard to understand. For before the fall, Adam was holy. Why was Adam holy? Because he kept the commandments perfectly. Then what happened? Adam broke one commandment by eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He was driven out of the garden and was given a nature in likeness to Satan, for he and Eve believed Satan over God. Now, Adam has a sin nature which is ineradicable. There is no way any amount of morality can eradicate our evil sin nature. Therefore, there is no way that we can be holy. And the only way to go to heaven is to be holy. So what happens? The second Adam comes to earth, which is Jesus, and fulfills the commandments for us. He does what the first Adam did not do. He lived perfectly here on earth for about 33 years. And thus, he then was put on the cross and took on hell for us. That's his passive obedience, which completed the job. For while he was here on earth, he had fulfilled the commandments already. And so, both his passive and his active obedience is the righteousness of God. And that is imputed to us by faith, which makes us holy. So when our Father in heaven looks down from heaven to us, he sees his son's obedience as our obedience, and therefore we are holy. Again, Christian, had you no thoughts of leaving off praying? Hopeful. Yes, and a hundred times twice told. Christian, and what was the reason you did not? Hopeful. I believed that it was true, which had been told me to wit that without the righteousness of this Christ, all the world could not save me. Why? Because it is only the righteousness of God that can make us holy. Hopeful. I believe that it was true which had been told me to wit that without the righteousness of this Christ, all the world could not save me. And therefore, thought I with myself, if I leave off, I die. That is, eternally, you will experience a second death in which he will be eternally separated from God because he's not holy. And I can but die at the throne of grace. And with all this came into my mind, if it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come and will not tarry. And that is what each of us as Americans should do. Let's read it again. And this is actually scripture. If it tarry, if salvation tarry, 
wait for it because it will surely come and will not tarry. Wait for it. The Father will eventually reveal the Son to us natural men Americans that are not yet saved. Christian, and how was he revealed unto you? Hopeful. I did not see him with my bodily eyes, but with the eyes of my understanding. And thus it was. One day, I was very sad. I think sadder than at any one time in my life. And this sadness was through a fresh sight of the greatness and vileness of my sins. Now, this is extremely important. What he's talking about here is that the moment of salvation, God circumcises our heart and we see our heart as he does. And now we see the vileness of our original sin. And we realize that we should be condemned to hell because our fig leaves of morality can do diddly squat in removing our original sin. And it is not until we see how condemnable and hopeless we are because of our original sin that we look for another option. And what is that other option? But hungering and thirsting after the righteousness of God by faith. If we have not seen our heart in this fashion, we are an almost Christian. We can have a surrender that has no fingerprints on it, but there must be a death, a death of the fig leaves of morality, a death of the covenant of works, a death of the old man. For as we have mentioned many times, the fig leaves of morality are an idol. We are born into this world believing our fig leaves of morality will get us to heaven. And that is why it is so hard for the fig leaves of morality to die a death. And it is not till we see our heart as God does that we will now understand that there must be a death to the fig leaves of morality. Now that same law that we thought was going to give us an eternal life by following it now must be used to expose the evil proclivities of our heart and to also demand perfection, which throws us to the feet of Jesus crying out for mercy and then he is lifting us up and embracing us saying, fear not, my father's wrath is subdued. I have fulfilled the moral law for you. Now back to Pilgrim's Progress. And thus it was, one day I was very sad. I think sadder than at any one time in my life. And this sadness was through a fresh sight of the greatness and vileness of my sins. And as I was then looking for nothing but hell, because my fig leaves of morality were useless in making me holy. And the everlasting damnation of my soul, 
Suddenly, as I thought, I saw the Lord Jesus looking down from heaven upon me and saying, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. But I replied, Lord, I am a great, a very great sinner. And he answered, My grace is sufficient for thee. My righteousness of God by faith is sufficient for thee. Then I said, but Lord, what is believing? And then I saw from that saying, he that comes to me shall never hunger. And he that believes on me shall never thirst. That believing and coming were one. And that he that came, that is, that ran out in his heart and affections after salvation by Christ. He indeed believed in Christ. Then the water stood in mine eyes, and I asked further, But Lord, may such a great sinner as I am be indeed accepted of thee and be saved by thee. And I heard him say, and him that comes to me, I will no wise cast out. Then I said, but how, Lord, must I consider of thee in my coming to thee that my faith may be placed right upon thee? Then he said, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He is the end of the law for righteousness that is self-righteousness to everyone that believeth he died for our sins and rose again for our justification justification again is a legal term and when he rose from the dead it proved that he fulfilled the commandments he who knew no sin was made sin he is mediator between God and us. He ever lives to make intercession for us from all which I gather that I must look for righteousness in his person and for salvation for my sins by his blood, that what he did in obedience to his father's law, he fulfilled the moral law for us, and in submitting to the penalty of, he took on hell, that's his passive obedience, was not for himself, but for him that will accept it for his salvation and be thankful. And now was my heart full of joy, mine eyes full of tears and mine affections running over with love to the name, people and ways of Jesus Christ. Christian, this was a revelation of Christ to your soul indeed. But tell me particularly what effect this had upon your spirit. Hopeful, it made me to see that all the world, notwithstanding all the righteousness thereof, is in a state of condemnation. It made me see that God the Father, because he be just, can justly justify the coming sinner. It made me greatly ashamed of the vileness of my former life 
and confounded me with the sense of mine own ignorance. For there never came thought into mine heart before now that showed me so the beauty of Jesus Christ. It made me love a holy life and long to do something for the honor and glory of the name of the Lord Jesus. Yea, I thought that had I now a thousand gallons of blood in my body, I could spill it all for the sake of the Lord Jesus. May the Lord bless thee and keep thee in the name of Jesus. Amen.